Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, June 10th, 2022. And today will be better than yesterday. Taylor Schwink is not here today. Sarah Abbott's running the ship today from Bristol. Sarah, what's going on? Nothing much. Just, you know, hanging out. I'm really excited to be running the ship, but I always miss Taylor. It feels weird. Feels like we're missing a link. That's not what you said before the show started. I could tell you're hungry for power. So I'm just oh, going to yes. get out of the way. I'm Buster Only. I'm working from my home in New York. Sarah, can I get a hallelujah? The Angels losing streak is over because of Shohei Otani, who was hitting. And he was pitching. That was the sound of Otani giving a scream after he struck out Jackie Bradley Jr. The Angels win 5-2. Their 14-game losing streak is over. Streaking the other way, the Atlanta Braves, who faced the Pirates yesterday, Dansby Swanson got a big hit. Looks at Acuna, comes back to the plate, and it's bloop to right, and a fall, base hit. Acuna waved around third, he will score easily on the RBI single by Swanson. That sound from 680, the fan. The Braves have now won eight in a row and are six and a half games out of first place right behind them. The Phillies, who are also streaking, they haven't lost since making a change in manager. Rob Thompson came in a week ago, and they've been winning every single day, including on Thursday when Bryce Harper went deep. Swing and fly ball out to center. Deep back, Taylor. Still back, and Bryce Harper with his second home run in as many days. That sound from Sports Radio 94 WIP. Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, where you earn rewards with every purchase. Vivid Seats Rewards is your ticket to more tickets. Vivid Seats. Life happens live. The Twins played host to the Yankees on Thursday, and for Garrett Cole, it was not a good night. A drive to left. He has another one. Put on a show, Byron Buxton. Larry off. Deep to right center field. Will it ever come down? Garrett Cole's final pitching line, five homers and seven runs allowed in two and a third innings. But you know what? The Yankees came back with ex-twin Aaron Hicks delivering the game-tying hit in the top of the sixth inning. Hicks launches that down the right field line. This game is tied. Here's what happened with the score tied seven all in the top of the seventh inning. Rizzo pokes it the other way. A base hit. Judge rounding third, heading home. He scores. The Yankees get two home runs from Joey Gallo in this game. They win 10 to seven. They are 41 and 16. There's a lot of conversation in baseball around a decision made by Tony La Russa in the White Sox and Dodgers game yesterday. The Dodgers led 7-5 to five in the top of the sixth inning. Trey Turner was at the plate. Freddie Freeman moved to second on a wild pitch, the count shifting to one ball and two strikes, and that's when La Russa decided to intentionally walk Trey Turner. Give a listen to ESPN 1000. 
So one and two on Trey Turner, and they will intentionally walk him with Muncie on deck. So first and second. After that, Max Muncie did this. High fly ball the other way. Pollock's going back. It's gone! Three-run home run for Max Muncie. So the Dodgers win the game 11-9, and after the game, LaRusso was asked about that decision to intentionally walk Turner. Turner was a, a strike left against a left-hander is not something you can avoid if you can. And we had an open base, and Muncy happened to be the guy behind him, and that's a better matchup. Here again, somebody disagrees, that's, that's the beauty of this game. Welcome to it. But that, that wasn't a tough call. Now, there's some numbers that actually back up what LaRusso did, and I'll be talking about those with Paul Hembikides coming up. Sarah, what else do you have? Thank you, Buster. Be sure to check out The Low Post. It's bringing you some of the best insights into the world of the NBA, hosted by Zach Lowe. Zach is joined by Brian Windhorst for a special post-game podcast this NBA Finals. So be sure to check that out because we have game four tonight. Also, be sure to check out the greatest mixtape ever. It's a story of how streetball videos set to music in the 90s transformed basketball's place and culture, defined the lives of the players who starred in them, and changed the game itself forever. Stream now on ESPN Plus and listen to the Companion 30 for 30 podcast, a streetball mixtape, exploring the essence of streetball through a collection of legendary stories. Listen now on Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. Jumping into the numbers. This is Himbo Knows on Baseball Tonight. Himbo is Paul Embikides, a researcher at ESPN who's a honcho on the show, get up and uh, in charge of everything. Uh, and that today, Himbo, includes being the best friend in the world to Tony La Russa. Because it, when I texted you this morning uh, and asked you for some data behind his decision yesterday, you know what? Maybe there was some rationale behind it. Uh, there's no question, Buster. Uh, when I saw this yesterday... I had the same initial reaction as everyone else, which is, what the heck is Tony La Russa doing intentionally walking a batter with two strikes? This is baseball in 2022. Nobody can hit with two strikes, right? Well, not really. To be honest with you, Trey Turner is an excellent hitter. And even in the context of his circumstances, (laughs) I'm not so sure it was the wrong decision given the information he had at the time. Buster, after the count reaches one and two for Trey Turner, this season he's five for 15. That's a small sample size. Over the last three seasons, he's betting 362 with a 638 slug in this exact situation after a one and two count against a left-handed pitcher. So that's enough of a sample that says, you know what? He might do some serious damage here. Not to mention the fact that Max Muncie was 5-4-40 against left-handed pitching, obviously, on deck. Now, does that mean I think Tony LaRusso made the right decision? I don't know. Look, th- these things are so much easier to judge after they happen. But given all the information that I just laid out, I understand what Tony was doing. Now, I think the obvious kickback here is there's two outs. You're not setting up a double play. There's a left-handed hitter that's coming up to the plate. That's obviously not part of the discussion. But on its face, Trey Turner still excels in the exact situation in which he was in. Max Muncie is awful in the exact situation he was in. Sometimes, Buster, you can hit a good putt without it going in. Right. Uh, and I think if you're sitting in uh, Tony's position and I, I I'm, you know, everything you said, I agree with. I, I think I would have made a different decision than Tony did, but there was certainly data behind it. And I think as he's sitting there, he's thinking, okay, who's more likely 
to get ahead. Trey Turner or Max Muncie, based on the information, there's no question it's Trey Turner. <laughs> uh, and, there's, and thus, there's no question that he made the right decision. And I have to admit, Buster, it really irked me to read literally hundreds of tweets from keyboard warriors, people that think they know more about baseball than someone who's won nearly 3,000 games in the big leagues. Look, Tony La Russa is a Hall of Fame manager. Tony La Russa has forgotten more about baseball than any of those people will ever know. Again, I'm with you. I don't know that I would have made that decision. In fact, I probably wouldn't have had the guts to. But that's the difference between Tony La Russa and everybody else. And if you can make the right decision 55% of the time as a manager, you're going to go to the Hall of Fame. He's obviously there. I bet you he slept just fine last night with that with the decision that he made. Of that, I'm confident in saying I would say this, if I were covering the White Sox today, the conversation that I would uh, have with Tony would be, you know what? A lot of those numbers may not necessarily apply with the left-hander he had on the mound at that moment. Uh, Bennett Susu, who's the pitcher, is not a shutdown lefty so far in his career. Lefties have an OPS over 800. So that would no, be the, yes. the one part that I would say, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? As you're sort of factoring in all these things, that would be the one question I would have with Tony. All that data maybe doesn't apply with uh, this particular left-hander. Totally fair, but on the contrary, Buster, the worst argument you can make today is the league's only hitting 160 within two strike counts this year. You know what? The league is not Trey Turner. He's way better than the league average hitter. And you know what? Trey Turner is hitting with a platoon advantage, all right? I, I, yep. I, look, there's, and this is what makes baseball great. Every decision comes with a terabyte data points and look that's what makes this thing so fun but do i think the fact that max muncie hit a home run means that tony larusa made the wrong decision absolutely unequivocally not you know a week ago uh we tony larusa would have been in the conversation for maybe the best manager in the history of baseball but that's not the case anymore rob thompson clearly is undefeated <laughs> the phillies never lose with rob in the dugout but buster contrary to popular sabermetric belief the only thing that matters in baseball, as we now know, is who's managing the team. That is what, the, that is what the, these Phillies prove. I, I want to take you back a week ago when you and I, I think, sort of sh uh, shared the same thought here, which was, you know, firing Joe Girardi was putting lipstick on a pig. The Phillies don't have a good roster, and the Phillies firing Joe Girardi is just something to do that says we did something. Well, <laughs> I guess it shows uh, how much I know in that context because they're 6-0 since the firing. They scored 47 runs and allowed 14 runs. It's the team's best run differential in any six-game span since May of 2008. The Phillies won the World Series, of course, that season. And a glimmer of hope as we move forward here, because, of course, the Phillies are going to lose again sometime soon, probably this weekend. Philly has played the most difficult schedule in the National League to date. And moving forward, only the Cardinals own an easier one. Now, I don't necessarily think the Phillies are on the fast track to the playoffs by any stretch of the imagination. But like you said, I mean, Rob Thompson is now at least equal to, if not greater than Connie Mack. But the Phillies might be the third best team in the division. And according to you, the second best team might be the New York Mets in the <laughs> National League East. How come? Because as baseball gambling becomes more and more popular, Buster, I'm just always sort of on the lookout now for numbers or lines or odds that jump out to me. And I found one yesterday, and I want it to present to you and your listeners. That number is plus 300. Plus 300, that is is the number that you can get the Braves at to win the National League East. They're 3-1. to one. In my opinion, outstanding value for a team this good. Here's my logic. So right now, they're six and a half games back. Last year, there were as many as eight games back in the middle of June. We know that lead was not insurmountable, so there's some history there. Going back to 2019 now, and I'm going to exclude 2020 because it was only a 60-game season, 
Atlanta is two games under 500 through the month of May, 53 games over from June on. So there's a track record of slow starts in hot summers, Buster. And lastly, look, Ronald Acuna is a singular force, a singular force. The Braves have played 58 games this season, 29 with him, 29 without him. With Ronald Acuna, they're 18 and 11. They average nearly five runs a game. Without him, they're 13 and 16 and average just over four. That gap buster is equivalent to the difference between the number one offense in baseball and the number 23 offense in baseball. This team is on the fast track to making it a very competitive division. And I don't think a six and a half game lead that the, that the Mets have right now is anything approximating insurmountable. In uh, talking about the Braves, you didn't mention my new favorite player, Michael Harris II. Oh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, one uh, thing about Alex Anthopoulos, the general manager of the Braves, who, who, I think we've learned that he is willing to make changes. Like he's pliable in terms of what they need and what they have. And it was clear midway through last year, he needed to bolster the outfield, but he also was like, you know what? I'm going to add power. Jock Peterson, mm -hmm. Jorge Soler, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I kind of like the shift in the middle of this year's team to defense. Cause when I watched the Braves early on and uh, you know, with all due respect to Adam Duvall, you know, uh, plays a terrific corner outfielder, him playing center field. No. And now when you watch them play and they got Acuna in right field, back healthy, and you got uh, Harris in center field, wow. Yeah, I mean, this kid was so good that they were willing to uh, include Christian Pache in the trade to Oakland for Matt Olson. And yeah. one of the reasons why I think Atlanta is very much a player here is because I'm not sure there's any general manager in the sport right now that does a better job of diagnosing how good his team is and how good his team isn't than Anthopolis. In my judgment, his season last year, during his mid-season acquisitions were as good as Theo Epstein's in 2004. We're talking about le a legendary executive season. This team is going to get a lot better throughout the course of the season. Look, if the Mets win 100 games, they might wind up winning the East. But there is very little margin for error there. Definitely not six and a half games worth. The Yankees uh, yesterday saw their starting pitcher give up five home runs in the first inning, uh, first three innings, and yet they mm -hmm. came back and won again with the home run. What are you seeing there? So, Buster, there are any number of reasons why the Yankees are just blowing past my expectations for them. But perhaps most importantly, they're winning because they're hoarding baseball's most valuable currency. That, of course, is home runs. Here's what I mean. The Yankees have, despite last night, they've out-homered their opponent by 41 through 57 games. That's a differential of plus 116 over the course of a full season. Some context for that. The 1927 Yankees, not surprisingly, owned the record, if you will. That was plus 116. The 1961 Yankees, you know, Maris, Mantle, they were plus 103. Look, I, I got to tip my cap to Brian Cashman. That guy knows how to build a baseball team. Yeah, I, I there's no doubt about it. And by the way, for more context on 1927, mm. uh, if I remember correctly, that year, Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs and he had more home runs than any other team. Just the individual player, correct? Babe Ruth, uh, the year in which Babe Ruth out-homered every other team in the American League was 1921. But in 1927, he and the Yankees constituted like a huge percentage of the American League. Obviously, that's not the case anymore. But I think it sort of underscores exactly how special this group is. If you can hit, if you can out homer your opponent to this degree, almost one per game, you're going to win way more baseball games than you lose. Now we don't know if that's necessarily a durable or sustainable formula come say October. But look, home runs are where the is, is where money is made now in Major League Baseball. And right now the Yankees hit them and suppress them better than any team in the sport, and that is hard to do. 
All right, Hembo. Hey, good luck uh, in your conversations with your wife about naming one of your forthcoming children uh, after Rob Thompson. You know, I know you'll figure <laughs> out a way to make that happen. Yes, Rob Thompson. And then perhaps, I mean, we're, we're having two daughters, so this is going to be tricky. But I mean, I think Larusa Hembakita sounds pretty good. <laughs> All right, Hembo. Thanks. Later, man. You can now stream the most Major League Baseball games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your Major League Baseball games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECT-TV or visit directtv.com. That's D-I-R-E-C-T-V.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip codes and requires choice package. Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN. Get great deals in the hottest tickets. Experience it live. Jessica Mendoza is an analyst for ESPN. And Jess, you're going to have to carry me today. Like physically? You're, you're not able to walk? You're going to have to carry this segment because uh, peek behind the curtain. It's Thursday afternoon when I'm taping with you because you've got a crazy busy <laughs> schedule at the college uh, softball World Series. And I was at the McCartney concert last night at Fenway Park. I drove all the way back to New York afterward. I got home at 2.30, then got a call from my daughter at 4.30 from she's traveling in Europe and had an issue she needed help with. So I'm just going to put topics on the table. You're going to talk and I'm going to see if I can sort of put together your thoughts because my brain is scrambled right now. Yeah, I really feel bad for you with the Paul McCartney concert and the fact that your daughter's in Europe. That's that's rough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I but texted I you. you at the beginning of that you. concert last night and I was like, hey, I'm at the McCartney concert and you were kind of pissed off. Yeah, exactly. I'm a huge Paul McCartney fan. I was like 10 minutes to air and I get this video of Paul McCartney in like awesome seats. And I was like, seriously, Buster? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here are the topics. Weighted runs created. Tell me about that. Well, I mean, it's just like we see with a lot of these weighted, you know, WOBA, you know, weighted on base average. Statistics. It's and a statistic. What, yeah. Yeah. The, the saber metrics and what, you know, I think how it can put it in perspective. And what I love about it is with weighted runs created plus, and a lot of when you add that plus, it basically makes it um, above or below average. So a hundred is average. Anything below or above that is really good or really bad. Um, and so it, it kind of makes it like dumbs it down a little bit, <laughs> if that makes sense. But what I love about it is, you know, com- covering the women's college world series right now, it also allows us to go across softball and baseball because of how many runs a player is creating. It's actually been the biggest offensive stat that we've seen now the last two years. So Jocelyn Allo, who, by the way, is the home run queen. She hit two more last night. She's hit four home runs in two games here at the Women's College World Series. So like the toughest competition that you're going to face. If you haven't heard her name, you're pretty much living under a rock at this point. But her uh, weighted runs created plus is at three which is like mind-blowing. And to put that in perspective, in MLB history, the highest weighted runs created plus is actually 244 by Barry Bonds. 
back in 2004. So just to think, you know, and Aaron Judge this year, he's leading and he broke 200. He's at 202 right now, which most guys, when they're at like their peak having insane seasons, they're in like the 170 to 190 range. So not to nerd out, but I'm just trying to give the perspective of the amount of runs that a player can create. And right now, Jocelyn Allo is at a 303, meaning she's 200% more than MLB average, and honestly, 59% more than Barry Bonds in 04 for everything that he was in that season. And so I just I just wanted to give it that perspective because not only has she hit 121 home runs, but she's also batting 500 on the season, not like the last week or the last two weeks, small sample size. No, we're talking almost 80 games and she's hitting 500 on the season. So to me, like that nerdy stat, but I love it honestly for, for baseball and softball because it's the perfect way to explain how much a player is producing runs. At the end of the day, if you want to win games, you got to produce runs. And right now, Jocelyn Allo is at the top. Yeah, so she's like Babe Ruth and Shohei Otani put together. And I know you're competitive enough to know that you might know the answer to this question. What was your WRC plus in college? Oh my gosh. I actually have no idea. You know what? Actually, it's funny. I, I was I'm kidding about you, you know, being aware of those stats. You need to talk about that on like the next broadcast, you know, or have yeah. the producers put it up and have you guess what your number is. That's, well, that's going to either be really incredibly cool for you or incredibly disappointing, right? Yeah, or like really humbling, being like, God, I thought I was good, but <laughs> well, I know it's no Jocelyn Allo, but I'm I'm sure it was decent. It's just crazy to think about though, because it is a cool way to understand yeah. your total package and and what you're doing to produce. I I completely agree with you. I love that stat. Uh, so the Angels, in the midst of this losing streak, firing their manager Joe Madden, they bring in Phil Nevin. Uh, yesterday, somebody in the organization thought it was a good idea with a 13 game losing streak to change the walk-up music for all the players. Uh, and I don't know who ordered this. I don't think it was Phil Nevin, if you know his personality. My guess it wasn't Perry Manassi and their general manager, but somebody thought it was a good idea. I got to say, when I saw that, Jess, I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't do stuff like that. Uh, and, I, and I go back to a conversation I had with Joe Torrey when I covered the Yankees. Uh, and I asked him, I said, hey, when you're in a long losing streak, did you believe in stuff like, draw the lineup out of a hat, uh, you know, mix stuff up, do this or do that. He goes, nope, you don't do it. Because what happens if you do that and then you lose? Then it just feels silly and dumb. And so Joe's belief was, uh, yeah, you might do something like send a coach up, different coach up to, with a lineup card, but don't change anything. Put in your work, believe in the process, because that's ultimately what you're going to have to trust. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I'm all for, I am actually for mixing things up. Um, I am a big, you know, superstition type, but I think like you kind of have to come up with it on your own and not have it thrown at you. <laughs> like you're, You know, you have your walk up, like guys have superstitions and to do something like complete blank across the board. And I know it seems silly. It's a song that you walk up to and it's just mixing up. But to me, like, you can't mess with Mojo on the individual. Like, everyone has their thing. And if they want to mix that up, kudos, go for it. Like, do something different. But you don't force it on people. I mean, the superstition part of baseball is, is insane. And especially pitchers, which they also change their music to. I mean, that's when it's almost like bringing to light and even more attention. Like, hey, by the way, you guys have been awful. So now we're going to go ahead and just change everything for everybody and make that 
that you're hyper aware of this, even when you're walking up to your bat or coming out of the bullpen. What was your walk-up music? Um, I had <laughs> a lot of ACDC. All right. Um, yeah. Well, what happened I'm, to you? You're big... an old soul. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Oh, no, for sure. And Bon Scott, ACDC. So we're going like back, back, ACDC. Um, and then All Right Now for free sometimes, because that's Stanford's fight song, um, which yeah. is pretty cool because we're the only school with like a classic rock fight song. <laughs> um, and then every now and then I'd mix in some like Latin music too. Cause I'd like salsa dance my way in the batter's box, depending on how I was feeling. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. All right. Uh, Nathan Abaldi, tell me what you're seeing in him of the Red Sox, obviously part of the Red Sox turnaround recently. Yeah, no, I mean, the velocity has been down. I know that was concerns by Alex Cora. I think he called timeout uh, fifth inning in the game yesterday, but I think, you know, the biggest thing I notice, Buster sometimes with guys when their VLO goes down, sometimes we think it's a big injury for him. It's been like hip tightness. So it's not a huge worry of something going on with his arm or his shoulder. Um, but something he talked about, and I've heard a lot of pitchers talk about is when the velocity isn't there, there's such <clears throat> a much more emphasis on spin and movement and understanding that. And I think for a guy like Nathan Avaldi, as we all know, I mean, he's known for the heat, the velocity that he can bring, um, but to see his split finger, to see his breaking ball to see his alternative secondary pitches and the emphasis that he was putting on those understanding that he didn't have the velocity to just blow it by guys um, almost makes you a better pitcher, especially as you heal. And of course that velocity gets back. You want to be able to have all the things, but that's one thing I've heard a lot of pitchers talk about is sometimes when the velocity isn't there for whatever reason, it allows you to be more complete and understand the things that you really need to work on when you're looking at movement and location. It's interesting because, uh, as you know, earlier in Evaldi's career, when he first was in the big leagues, he was known as an Iron Mike type pitcher. In other words, he could throw almost 100 miles an hour, but there was no movement. And so he would get hit harder than he was throwing. Uh, yeah. But then as he's gone on, it's the great thing about baseball is players evolve, players change, players adapt. And he's over through the years been able to uh, to develop some movement. Um, you know, there's a question in the National League, who's the better team, Dodgers or Mets? Uh, I think a lot of that's going to come down at the end of the year to the depth of the starting rotation. And Tony Gonsolin has been an important part of the Dodgers. You know, it's almost like a secret weapon because you look at, you know, all the, the big name starters that we've seen across the years with the Dodgers and Tony Gonsolin has just been that steady Eddie. Like he's been honestly their best starter. When you look at consistency, you look at results. And this was a guy that didn't even know if he'd be in the starting rotation coming out of spring training. Remember, they were trying to decide as they have the last couple of years, of course, a different story now, but they had so many options. And so Gonsolin was kind of like maybe the fifth guy. He could be the sixth. We might, you know, see him out of the bullpen. Instead, he has been the go-to and been able to give length. That was his biggest goal coming into the season. He actually sat down with Clayton Kershaw, worked with him in spring training to understand how can I provide more innings? What am I doing wrong? And the biggest thing that stood out, and Clayton was a, a huge help in this, is like you got to attack the strike zone more. you got to go after hitters and stop picking. And one of the things that Tony has done in the past is he's always had the stuff always had, but as soon as he would start to get in trouble or face even better hitters, he'd start to pick around the play and get a lot of walks constantly. That was kind of his thing. Um, or, you know, pitching a deep count. So he understood pitching to contact, getting and attacking hitters and honestly how that puts them on the heels. And that has been paying dividends for the Dodgers. Saw it again in a big start this week. Um, but being able to go six plus innings consistently and giving up two or less runs in his last, gosh, five or six starts. 
All right. So next week's segment, I want you to have a T-shirt that has your WRC plus on it. Uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah Abbott, jump in here. What would you guess her WRC plus was for her career? Because I'm thinking it was, you know, and I, I, I don't know your statistics off the top of uh, my head, but I do know your reputation. I'm guessing it was 210. Sarah Abbott, you want to uh, throw a number out there? I'm going to guess 212 because of the price See, is right rules. That's a bunch of crap right there. You're doing the price is right thing. Price that is, is right not rules. right. <laughs> yeah. That's why you shouldn't go first. Price is right rules. <laughs> yes. If it's over 200, I- I'd be pumped. All right. Thanks, Thanks Buster. Jess. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. All aboard! It's the Ravi Train with Carl Ravitch on Baseball Tonight. Carl Ravitch, play-by-play man for Sunday Night Baseball. The Ravi Train this weekend will be in Anaheim, California, because we got the Mets playing against the Angels. And Ravi, that the Angels they stop the bleeding for a night. You know, I I, I talked to Perry Manassi and their uh, general manager last night, and he mentioned to me, he said, you know, we're not this bad. Like we're not dead. I agree with him. I mean, I I think that a lot of times you get caught up in 8, 10. I think when it grows to 14, it gets a little little more concerning. But as I think I said to you guys during a conference call we had about Sunday Night Baseball, uh, I mean, if they had lost five in a row, then won one, and then lost seven in a row, they would have lost 12 or 13 games. And it doesn't ever get counted as a 14 or 13 game losing streak because you broke it up with one win. So I, I, I didn't go too deep into this is just doomsday for the Angels, comparing it with other teams that have found themselves three, four, five games out of the wild card. And the Red Sox are certainly the example that are now in the wild card and would be a playoff team. I mean, the Angels, because of the way they banked wins in the early part of the season, are in fine shape. I mean, start the season now. Do the Angels have a chance to get into the playoffs? Absolutely. Now, a lot of things have to go right, and they need guys to get healthy, but it's uh, whether this is just a small Band-Aid that eventually falls off when you dive into the pool or it's something that sticks for the rest of the season, that, that's kind of what remains to be seen. As of this morning, the Angels two and a half games behind the Red Sox for the third wild card spot uh, on that conference call yesterday. You mentioned the possibility of reaching out to Joe Madden. What what did you uh, make of all that, Carl? The fact that they decided to move on from him? Uh, well, I'm not I'm not shocked by it. I think we had seen some of the tremors uh, leading up to that decision, and they may have extended into I don't know last year, depending on what Perry's 
feelings were about some of the decisions, some of the discussions uh, that were had. But, uh, you know, I think I think the walking of Seeger with the bases loaded intentionally was was one to raise an eyebrow, um, you know, and I think a 14 game losing streak continues that. I, I think my takeaway from the whole thing, Buster, was I was a li- I was surprised how aggressive Joe was in his post firing comments about analytics and the role that they play in this game Um, because it seemed like he tried to not be dismissive of them when he was very dismissive of them. Um, And it was also interesting. I don't know if you saw the post-game comments from Phil Nevin last night after Otani pitched so well and hit the homer. He kind of fell back on, you know, you can see Otani's body language as one of the indicators as to how the game is going. And uh, body language to me is kind of old school. He said with, with Otani, it's really the body language and to see how the swings are on him. And they weren't taking a lot of good swings. And in a lot of ways, that's Nev talking to me about baseball in the 1990s. And it's not about somebody who would look at Otani's spin rate or Otani's horizontal sweeping movement and say he had that pitch going. So there's this reliance on language that I think was once used that may have taken Perry back a little bit. Like that's not how we communicate. That's not how we speak here in, in angels land or really in the major league baseball front offices and their managers anymore. Um, so I thought it was interesting that Nevin went to the body language comment, but I think that's what is rooted in in the decision to move Joe out. 14 games and some of those things add up to, the, here's my chance, and uh, I'm going to take it, and now it's really on me. And Perry's reshaped this entire team. He's reshaped the front office. He's reshaped the uh, manager's office. Now it's on him. I must say when I read Joe's comments where he was you know, pushing back against analytics, I, I felt like my instinct was he was kind of playing to stereotype a little bit because <laughs> it's that whole, yeah. you know, we hear that dynamic between, well, you know, old school managers, uh, you know, those guys are pushing uphill against uh, people who only care about numbers. And, and there were a couple of things that were interesting about that to me. I think you would agree with me that 15 years ago when Joe was with the Tampa Bay Rays, he was viewed as one of the most progressive managers. He was a guy who was viewed as being, uh, you know, being open to uh, applying defensive shift, for example. Uh, he was someone who yeah, was willing to do some of the stuff that the Rays did in terms of roster construction. And the other thing, too, and right. we talked about this on the conference call yesterday, Perimanassian is not, uh, an, he's not a numbers guy. Like, that is not his background. Uh, you know, he, when he was with it. He grew up basically in the Texas Rangers clubhouse where his dad worked. He got to know Buck Showalter, who's like his patron saint in baseball because uh, he liked the, the work that Perry did. Perry's more of a field guy, I feel like. And he, he likes, you know, culture and, and mixing the right players and adding the right player at the right time. He's not a guy when you talk to him who, who's talking about, you know, what some guy's, uh, you know, exit velocity is on Tuesdays. And I, that's part of the reason why I was a little bit surprised by what Joe said. Yeah, I, I think it's a great question to ask Joe. Um, as one of the guys that were on the front line of these things uh, back with Tampa, and now that everybody else has, in his, I think, opinion, and we'd have to ask him, 
gone overboard with the original intent in his idea of what analytics meant. And yes, we will shift because it makes sense. And sure, we'll use Ben Zobrist all over the field. And yes, we'll platoon guys. I, I just think that Joe's impression of analytics is to use them to a degree, but not, and I think he believes, fall on the sword of analytics when you are making and I think he said it, every baseball decision. And I, I just, I think if you look around baseball today, and I don't know if you agree with this, but it feels like the managers whose organizations use analytics probably more than they had or have been exposed to analytics, like Bob Melvin, more than he was in Oakland now with San Diego. Um, remember, he told us analytics, that, that, that's just baked into the equation that we all use here, is a tip of the cap to, yep, I'm in on it. I'm not necessarily going to be able to explain it to you people in exact detail, like somebody who's involved in the numbers might, but I know it's important, and it's all part of what we do here. That, that's the answer to analytics. It's all part of what we do here, as opposed to dismissing the role that they play, which I think in Joe's comments, while again, he hedges saying, I know how important they are, but the idea that you have a but in capital letters is, is I think, off-putting to front offices. I, I'm surprised. I'm not sure who runs out and hires somebody who just made that comment, because as our buddy Sarah Langs has pointed out many times, the challenge with trying to criticize analytics is they, they are fact-based and they work. They make sense. They are proving a point sort of beyond a reasonable doubt that if you do this, it's going to work for you. I mean, how many pitchers have these organizations, the Giants, the Yankees currently, the Pirates, the Rays, taken guys who were fringe players, fringe pitchers, put them in a lab, showed them if you hold the ball – with this amount of pressure and throw it at this angle, not that one, but this one, you maximize your efficiency and you're a much better pitcher. It, 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 they work. And that's, I think, the part that drives people who are reluctant to embrace them crazy. And uh, I'll be honest, I, I was one of those. I wasn't, I wasn't somebody who denied them. I probably didn't understand them to the degree that I do now. And analytics are not going away because they just make sense. It's like, in a lot of ways, it's like science. Sometimes you want to not believe the science. You, you've got to believe them. There's a reason that they're here and they work. I agree with you. I would say this, uh, and we don't know exactly what Joe was referring to. You know, the next time I talk to him, the next time you talk to him, maybe we can yeah. dig into that yeah. with him. But I'll give you an example of how analytics really potentially affected the trajectory of one of the teams that he worked with. The Chicago Cubs, like a lot of teams, manipulated service time with Chris Bryant. Like they absolutely sliced to the edge. <laughs> okay, if we keep in the minor leagues this long, then we can back up when he becomes a free agent. And Carl, I absolutely believe that affected the relationship, not only between Bryant and the Cubs, but that whole group, I think it, it, it infected that group with some cynicism, uh, maybe, you know, robbing the whole group of some joy. Joe Madden, you know, led that team to a championship in 2016. It, it, it fell apart after that for that team slowly. And I'll always wonder if the manipulation of Brian's service time had something to do with that. And so that, I don't know, that uh, 
maybe he's referring to. I would. I, I hear you, but I would say this, Buster. If that, if that is in fact the hill of analytics that that he is choosing to kind of die on, right. I would say that in the most recent collective bargaining agreement, the two sides at least addressed it publicly. Certain organizations obviously seem to still ignore it and don't care yes. about it. Others, I think, have promoted players. And I would look at that 2016 Cubs team as one that was put together with analytics in mind because that's how Theo thinks. Yep. And yet what it needed was this massaging that Joe brought, which is the non-analytic part of it. That's where the whole baked-in concept works. Analytically, they were strong. What they needed was the other side. He accomplished that, and maybe he looks at it like, See, I told you, I wasn't thinking analytics. I was thinking what I bring to the table, but the formula was the recipe. The ingredients of analytically driven team was already there, and he took the next step. The, the service time manipulation, to me, isn't what current analytics is necessarily about with regards to organizations. Oh, I do. I, I do, absolutely. I'll give you an example. Uh, the, uh, who was it uh, last year? Orioles. Okay. No, 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 no. I'll give you an example. Tanner Houck last year, he made five starts in the big leagues. You know how many days of service time he was credited with for five starts in the big leagues? Five days. He was sent to the minor league. He was called up and sent down repeatedly up and down. That's part of analytics as well. You know, and I agree with you. I think there's a lot of it that's great in terms of decision, but I also think front offices, have gone too far in some cases, like where you mentioned the Orioles uh, before I cut you off, uh, where it's like, dude, you can do some of that stuff, but if you're surprised that the players begin to look at organizations with some cynicism yep. when you handle it that way, then you're not paying attention. Right. right, but I do think we're blurring it a little bit because I think the cynicism from the players in those situations comes from the fact, and I agree with the players, you are not putting your best product on the field. That alone sucks. And that, that, that needs to be addressed. And I think there's a beginning effort from both sides to address it. The analytics part that the Yankees pitchers are, are seeing or the Giants or the defensive shifts or all that, any, any player, not manager, but any player who looks at that and says, this doesn't make sense, this isn't working, is going to fall behind. You know, in a sense, they're not going to be promoted. You don't want to listen to this stuff. You don't want to make yourself better. You're not even going to be on the major league field. You don't have to worry about us promoting you because you're not doing what's best for you as a player. Yep. The, the blur is that is the, the let's not bring up this guy is a financial deal. The analytics suggest, why the hell would I pay him an extra year when I can have him an extra year? Business-wise, I understand that. But from a perspective of are we doing what's, what's best for the organization, this fan base, how are we making ourselves better? It's not by leaving him down in AAA or AA this season. That helps you guys in year six. It doesn't do anything for the team that's on the field this season. And that part, I think, is where service time manipulation is awful and needs to be done away with. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, Jesse Rogers and I talked last week about an example. Grayson Rodriguez, a great pitching prospect for the Orioles. Yes. Completely dominated yes. the first two months. He <laughs> should have been in the big leagues. He should have been able to be, have started uh, his major league career. And instead, they held him down the minor leagues, and then he got hurt. And now it looks like he's going to miss maybe the rest of this season, and the Orioles can go, well, next year we have to get him back. on. Uh, give me a break. They basically stole yeah. money from the kid. Right. So, See you in Nashville when he's able to pitch, right? 
<laughs> Speaking of which, and you, uh, and before we move on from this Sunday's game, uh, Mike Trout wearing a microphone for us this uh, this weekend. That'll be great. From what I hear about his injury, they're hopeful that he's going to come back on Friday. Uh, but there is an expectation that he will, he will play in our game on Sunday, and it'll be fun to for you guys to have a conversation with him uh, about the Orioles. There was a story uh, that was published by the Baltimore Banner that Lou Angelos, one of Peter Angelos' two sons, has sued his brother and his mother uh, over the fact that, uh, according to Lou, John Angelos has taken full control of the team despite their father intending for both sons to have equal control. The suit also claims that Lewis's mother, George Angelos, has wanted to sell the team. Carl, that I got to say, as someone who covered the Orioles and know, you know, knew Peter well, uh, you know, back in the 90s, this is not a surprise, <laughs> but it, it's an absolute mess. And I think from Major League Baseball's perspective, it's a worst case scenario. Well, it is. And I think, you know, as you know, and you read that article and you, and you know the Orioles as well as anyone from your days there and the Angelos family. Um, look, there's a there's a bit of a Steinbrenner feel to this thing. I think anytime this is this is like owning a home and having multiple children. What do you do with the future of the home? And who owns it? And should it just be sold? And then let them figure that out. There's there's so many layers to this, including I think that the owners had ultimately handed one of the brothers control of the team. John has control of the yeah. team. Well, right away you're setting up this idea that you're taking what the dad's wishes were, which was this was fifty fifty, and handing control to one of the two. So all of a sudden the scales are tipped in favor of John away from Louie. And I, you know, if I'm Louie, I'm wondering, well, what is happening here? This, this is not the wish of the man that owns the team. We have 50% control. And that seems to, if somebody is told you're in charge, you have control, that ain't 50, 50 in my world. Um, and, and this idea that perhaps uh, mom and Louie are thinking about John are thinking about selling this for what's now valued at what a billion something dollars versus the 170 million he bought it for again this is service time manipulation from an organization they want to sell the team and make a billion dollars on it or a 800 million dollar profit i understand that business-wise i get it doesn't mean that i would agree with it and if i'm louis i'm certainly not happy with it but this this when you when you invite family dynamics and percentages of team and wills and trusts and estates and all these things into it you're going to you're taking it from the diamond to the courtroom and that's where this is going yeah and if you're a fan of what they're building on the field how this could be affected moving forward uh is mm -hmm. that the fight between the two brothers could absolutely restrict the payroll we already know that in recent years they've tanked and they've cut their payroll to the bone and moving forward as this collection of young players evolves uh, the question of whether or not we're going to add to that team is going to be affected by this fight, however long it takes. Uh, one of the accusations, allegations made in that lawsuit by Lou is that John would like to move the team to Nashville, where John lives. And, and you know, Carl, I, I always pay attention to that because I went uh, to school there. I lived in Nashville yep. for eight yep. years. I think it, you know, if you asked me the question, 10 years, do I think that Nashville is going to have a major league team? Absolutely. But I think it's going to yep. be through expansion. I do not think it's going to be a case where the other owners would say, yeah, go ahead. Take that team out of Baltimore. Take that team out of Camden Yards and stick it in Nashville. And uh, we'll just give away to you one of our potential expansion spots. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, I think 
the same way airplanes get lined up on runways. I think there are teams currently that would move or be considered to be moved before Baltimore. I mean, I think Oakland and Tampa certainly come to mind. Yep. That if that were the way that, that Nashville gets a team, by the way, you, you know, you're, you're fourth in line. You're third in line for takeoff. You're not, to me, first in line for takeoff. And I do think expansion is coming, and I do think Las Vegas and Nashville, Tennessee, and perhaps Montreal are all – are all on the list of places where these teams or new teams are going to relocate. Again, I think a lot of times, Buster, in these situations, things are said, accusations are made, which may or may not be true, but it's just another way to kind of build your case, which is, again, going to end up in the courts and and or on Rob Manfred's desk because this this is a potential headache coming down the road, as you said, that this is going to, uh, damage the competitive integrity of the Orioles and certainly the teams that are in their division, let alone their league. It breaks my heart for Oriole fans. Uh, again, yes. having lived there and, and covered the Orioles for a couple of years, knowing how passionate that fan base is, knowing that in recent years they've lived through this tanking, the idea that all that hope might disappear through this legal fight. Mm-hmm. Kind of, it, it, it really is awful. And you do wonder what kind of condition that market's going to be in by the time all the dust settles uh, around this lawsuit between fight between the two brothers. All right. Before you go, Carl, I've got a bleacher tweet for you. This is from Debbie Gammons Brown, who asked the question, can't decide who loves baseball more, Sarah Langs or Tim Kirkchin? Who's got your vote, Carl? Because I, I sent on a tweet in response the other day that the only person I know who loves baseball more than Sarah Langs, in my experience being around baseball, maybe was Don Zimmer. Like he, <laughs> when he woke up every day, his whole life was around baseball. Sarah has such a passion for this sport. I, I, I think she's got more passion for it than even Tim. What do you think? It's a great question. I think if I were to answer, there's two ways to answer it. And I, I'm not hedging here. And I'll get to the ultimate answer. But I think, you know, given, given the years that Tim has spent in and around it, uh, <laughs> it's almost like a relationship that Sarah has yet to recognize <laughs> can be soured a little bit. T- Tim has seen the beauty of baseball, and he has seen the other side of it. In Sarah's case, she's, you know, so young and so enthusiastic and grew up with parents and grandparents who love the sport that it's almost like she she lives in a perpetual honeymoon phase when it comes to baseball, which is the (laughs) greatest phase of any relationship, where Tim has realized that there are some scars and there are some bruises and there are some dimples and pimples on this sport. Ugliness underneath. (laughs) Ugliness that that kind of offend him. So I'd say that currently uh, it's, it's, it's a draw on who loves it more, but Sarah's feelings about the game are still one of uh, of complete love and amorous, and Tim has realized, yeah, it's like a relationship. You know, I, I love I love the I love the game, but boy, there are days I don't like it at all. I hate it. I don't think Sarah's no doubt very much. Uh, Carl, I was going to say, there's no doubt that uh, that Sarah, Tim, I I can see the fact that they love the game more than I do. Would you say that for yourself? <laughs> yeah, I, again, I think that they that Sarah's got some blinders on. And uh, and Tim is just such a romantic about it. But I, I, look, I I will acknowledge that because of the way this sport has has impacted my life, uh, 
it is a love relationship. I don't ever hate it, but there are days where I'm like, that we're, why are we doing this to ourselves as a sport? We're, we're making mistakes. We're, we're killing ourselves. I, that's the part that I don't get. It's not all, you know, chocolate and roses, but boy, uh, it is something that I'm incredibly passionate about and, and do love on most days, but I, not, 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 not the way they do. I would agree. Yeah. I think the pandemic absolutely reminded you and I of how great it is to be on a baseball field and to talk with players and have great conversations. Cause that, that, when I was able to start to do that, especially last year was like, Oh, thank God. That was like lifeblood. Yeah. Take care. Uh, Travel safe. I'll see you at Anaheim. Okay. See you soon. Thank you. Bleacher Tweets. All right, Buster. It's time for Bleacher Tweets. The first one comes from Brayden at Hoodie Brayden. Is it an overstatement to say that the combination of Hunter Green and Graham Ashcraft is the best rookie starting pitching combo in the league? I know hot bats are mostly to thank for the Reds' record improvement, but Green and Graham are no joke. Yeah, and I talked to Nick Crawl, their general manager, on the eve of the season. He talked about how he really felt good about the young pitching they had coming up. Uh, think about Ashcraft so far this season. One home run allowed in 23 and two-thirds innings with a 1.14 ERA. And Hunter Green, uh, in those innings when he's able to command the ball, and be dominant. Wow. I, I mean, he just controls uh, hitters. It's fun to watch. Our next one comes from Mitchell at Tigers of Detroit. Is Jose Ramirez being overlooked in the MVP conversation? Most of the talk has been around Judge. Is that due to their markets or has Judge been that much better? Judge has been that much better. Uh, I mean, Judge is on a pace. hit over 60 home runs. First guy to do it in two decades. That's going to dominate the conversation uh, as we go along this summer. Next up is Kyle Benning. We've already seen the Phillies and Angels make a managerial change. How much longer do the White Sox have to underperform their expectations before La Russa is in the hot seat on the south side of Chicago? So Jerry Reinsdorf, the White Sox owner, is the most loyal person in baseball, and everybody knows it, which is why he brought La Russa back. He felt bad about firing him decades ago. Uh, I would be absolutely shocked if he were to fire La Russa in season. That's just not his style. All right. And our last one comes from Frank. Hi, everyone. Any numbers that really jump out to you for Sandy Alcatara? He's been carrying my fantasy pitching staff, and I love how he keeps throwing deep into the games. Yeah, Frank, I looked up uh, the stats on him after I saw your tweets, and I was like, I I didn't realize he had already racked up 83 and two-thirds innings which leads the majors, and he's faced the most hitters this year, 320. He is building an unbelievable season. All right, that's it for Bleacher Tweets. Be sure to rate and review this podcast and submit your questions using hashtag Bleacher Tweets. And be sure to check us out on YouTube every Monday. Just a subtle reminder, Buster, keep tweeting them out because you know who follows you on Twitter. That's right. Tell the class. Miles Teller. A.K.A. Rooster from Top Gun Maverick. (laughs) Oh, you are so fired up about that. He's a big baseball fan. It it is cool. You know what? Yeah. Miles Teller is a huge sports fan. uh, And that's why he's following me. Not because of anything I did. Just because he loves to follow sports. Did you see his first pitch last week? Pretty cool in Philadelphia. Oh, oh, did I see it? I've seen everything he has done. I am a Miles Teller stan. Miles, if you are listening to this, 
Hello. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it for today. That's it for this week. My thanks to Sarah, Carl, Jess, and Hembo. And thanks to you, the listeners. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality is something we need to fight against every single day. Thanks for listening to the Baseball Tonight podcast. If you're playing fantasy baseball, check out the Fantasy Focus podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The Baseball Tonight podcast. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.